I'm so excited to get to study God's word with you. As we dive in together, I want to share a short, a short story about a wonderful gray couch from Ikea. Any Ikea fans out there? A, a couch that I got from Ikea and how it went from being a wonderful, comfortable gray couch to a moldy, slightly neon green couch that will probably get donated to the local dumpster. So, so here's what happened. About five years ago, my wife and I bought this couch. It was the first piece of furniture that we had ever bought together. So it kind of had a special place in our hearts. We spent a lot of time holding our son, Caden, on there, playing with him. Um, we have some not-so-fond memories of cleaning up spit-up and blow-out diapers on this couch. That's the thing that babies seem to do best when you have a new couch, isn't it? They're always kind of having those kind of problems. But when we moved to years ago, we realized this couch was no longer main floor material. Do you, do you have any furniture like that in your house? So we moved it down to our basement. Now, in our basement this last summer, we developed a tiny, almost imperceptible leak, but there was some water that was dripping on this couch for several weeks that we didn't notice. And down in our basement, we've got this window and the sun hits it just right. And so this weird combination of water and sunlight caused part of our couch to turn this like fluorescent green color. I'm not sure what was growing on it, but I know that it definitely wasn't good. Now, this is the point in the story where I wish I could tell you that I took decisive action and I leapt in and fixed the problem. This is also the point in the story where I didn't do much of anything and I kind of ignored the problem and let it get worse and worse. And so fast forward a few weeks and then actually a few months later, last weekend I decided I have to tackle this issue and address whatever it is that is growing on our couch. So I took the couch apart, I carried it piece by piece upstairs, I got water and soap and carpet cleaning, chemicals of various strengths and power and even baking soda because supposedly that helps lift things off of stains and I went to town on this couch cleaning it in our driveway. I think I probably looked really strange to our neighbors based on the green color of the couch and the chemicals I was spraying and the white powder. I might have looked like a mad scientist, possibly a drug dealer as well. Um, I'm sure it looked just really, really weird, and they were wondering, what in the world is Andrew doing? But unfortunately, after many, many, many hours to this project, my wife, Amber, was, was laughing at me because of how much time I spent on this and several attempts to clean the couch. I'm sad to report that it's still green. It's just, it's still green. There's no, no hope for this couch, and it's probably going to end up being donated to the trash. But as I reflected on this experience, as I thought about today's message even, and where it all went wrong with the couch, I realized that initially I failed to make taking care of this problem a big enough priority. And maybe you've had a problem like that in, in your own house. Um, and then when the problem got bigger and bigger and bigger, I probably made it too much of a priority. I just shouldn't have spent this much time, you know, that I could have spent with my family or doing other meaningful things, trying to clean something that probably needed to be thrown away. And, and maybe you've experienced that in your own life, a time where your priorities got a little or a lot out of place and you ended up with a mess on your hands. I think if we're all honest, a lot of us have, quote, moldy couches in our lives that represent priorities that are maybe a little bit out of place. You probably don't literally have a moldy couch in your basement, of course, but maybe there's an area of your relationship with God or your relationship with others that's starting to get a little bit green. 
I think a lot of us struggle to maintain the right priorities. Sometimes we under-prioritize something that's really important and we fail to give it our time and energy and attention. Other times we over-prioritize something that isn't really that important, just like I did with the couch and other pieces of our lives, the ones that really matter actually suffer neglect. Man, our priorities are a big deal. They determine how we spend our time and our money. They impact our relationships. They really come to define who we are and how we live. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that our priorities determine the direction of our lives. They determine the direction of our lives. Now, today's passage is 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16. And in this passage, we get to see some priorities that are really important to the heart of God. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or pull it up with the Version Bible app on your phone. Now, in this passage, just to give you a little bit of context, Paul addresses a specific challenge facing Timothy and the church in Ephesus. Paul gives some very specific and nuanced and focused instructions about caring for widows in the church. And we're going to see what a big priority caring for widows is to God. But in this passage, it's primarily focused about caring for widows. We also see some other priorities that matter deeply to God's heart. And so as we walk through these verses together, we'll see four priorities that matter deeply to God. Let's go ahead and jump right into our text since we've already had a chance to pray. We'll get started here in verse 1 and 2. And the first important priority that we see in this passage is encouraging God's family encouraging God's family, which is the church, our, our church family. In verse 1 and 2, Paul says this to Timothy, never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Talk to younger men as you would your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mothers, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Did you catch all the family language and the family connection that's there in that passage? In the context of the church, Paul wants us to think of each other as family, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Paul tells Timothy he should never speak harshly to an older man. And the word here for speak harshly can also mean to beat upon or to strike intensely. And man, sometimes we can do that with our words. It's using your words in a reckless and hurtful way, beating on someone with our words. And this is not the way we should speak to each other in God's family. Instead, Paul tells Timothy to appeal respectfully to older men. And, and this word, appeal respectfully, is really important. It's the main verb in this passage that kind of defines how we should relate to fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in the context of the church. It's the same word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament for encourage and exhort and strengthen. And it's actually the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. We're to appeal to to each other, to encourage each other as family. When Timothy speaks to fellow believers, especially if he needs to offer a word of correction, he needs to encourage them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think this passage really powerfully reminds us that in the church, we are 
a family. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's own household. I remember reading that verse when I went away to college from my family for the first time, and it was so significant for me that away from my own family, I was reminded that I was part of the family of God, the, the Christians and the college ministry and the church that I was a part of. Man, when we become followers of Jesus, we join God's household. We're adopted as his sons and daughters. And this should impact the way that we treat each other, the way that we encourage each other. I think in our modern church context, especially in a bigger church, it's so easy just to kind of see each other as acquaintances. Or maybe you see um, people that you're closer with as possibly as friends or just people who attend the same class or are in the same small group as you. And man, it is meant to be so much more than that. I I realized this the other night, Tuesday night at small group, when my uh, family and I went to uh, the group that we attend on Tuesdays, we had a special party for a member of our small group who had just become an American citizen. It was really fun. She came here to the States to study medicine, and she went through this very long process to get her citizenship, and it it was just a fun celebration. We had a cake and covered it in whipped cream and strawberries and blueberries that looked like an American flag, and the kids, of course, ate way too much cake and got all crazy, um, but, and I maybe had two pieces of cake too, which I probably shouldn't have, but anyway, what, what stood out to me about that experience is we celebrated her citizenship was that there was a bond, and this hit me Tuesday night, there's a bond that we already shared in that group that was deeper and more powerful than even our bond as citizens. As people who believed in Jesus, we were family members. And to be honest, as I've studied this passage, I've been convicted and challenged on how I see my fellow family members in the body of Christ. Too often, I don't think of them in that way. You know, family calls for commitment. It calls for love and sacrifice and service. And that's how we're to treat each other in God's family. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to invite this whole room over for Thanksgiving dinner, of course. (laughs) But it does mean that you need to encourage your fellow believers in the family of God. We need to be committed to each other in the church. So that's the first priority, encouraging God's family. The second priority that we see in this passage is sharing God's compassion, sharing God's compassion. And man, this is a theme that runs all through scripture, but we especially see it here. In verses three through seven, Paul says, take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now, a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. 
Now, this section of 1 Timothy focuses on caring for widows. And actually, the next 14 verses in this passage focus on this theme. We might be a little surprised to see that in a relatively short letter, so much of the letter actually focuses on caring for widows. But when we look at Scripture as a whole, we see that this is a huge priority to God. God cares deeply about widows. He commanded his people to care for them and not exploit them. He put very very specific rules in place so that widows in the Israelite community would be cared for in specific and tangible ways. God promises to bless those who care for widows and condemn and even curse those who fail to care for widows. So this is a big priority to God. And we see that reflected in the life of Jesus. We see that reflected in the book of Acts, which talks about the church caring for widows. And of course, we see that here in 1 Timothy as well. Paul says if a widow is truly in need, the church should step in and provide care for her. Now, of course, the church had limited resources, and in that culture, there were many widows to care for. It was more common to die at a younger age, so there just would have been more widows in that culture. And they also didn't have government programs like Social Security or Medicaid, so all of the burden financially, um, medically, relationally, spiritually, all of that was placed on the church and on families. So the church had limited Limited resources, and Paul wants to make sure that families are also doing their share if they're able to care for the widows in their family and also in the church family. Now, in verse 5 through 7, Paul mentions two categories of widows. There are true widows who are alone in the world and have need, and then there are these widows who live only for pleasure. And I think at first this can be a little bit of a confusing phrase, but it's used in the Bible to describe a life of luxury and self-indulgence and just living for yourself. I think what was going on here is that there may have been widows who were taking advantage of the financial generosity of the church and just using the money that they received for their own pleasures. Reckless spending like this meant that there was less to give to those truly in need, and it also would have reflected poorly on the church. It would be like today receiving money from the Benevolence Fund and then in a really public way going out and spending that on a big screen TV. People would see that kind of behavior and rightly criticize the church for how it was stewarding its money. And so that's why Paul says, give these instructions to the church so no one will be open to criticism. Paul says that the widows who were taking advantage of the church were spiritually dead even while they lived. And I think this phrase can really apply to us as well. And it's important to understand what Paul is saying here. One commentator wrote this, and I thought it was insightful. He said, this description, being spiritually dead even while they live, calls to mind the fantasy of, quote, living life to the fullest, that the media constantly parades before us, Life is defined as a wild and always fashionable ride from one new experience to the next. But Paul calls this living death, for the ride takes one away from the true source of meaningful and eternal life, God, and leads one away from that. This quote, life is only a crude imitation. And here's a part I really want you to see. It's just a mask on the face of death. Man, what a powerful phrase. This life, when we're just focused completely on ourself and our own pleasure, and man, I feel this temptation in my own heart. I know that you guys do too. It's actually putting a mask on a face of death that can lead us away from true life. I'll put it this way. The places we try to find joy apart from God are often masked 
that we use to cover our empty hearts. Places that we try to find joy apart from God are often masked to cover our empty hearts. And so it's so important that we find true life, that in our search for life, we don't actually journey away from God towards death, but that we find him as the source of of life and self-giving love and that we can extend that love to others. That's what Paul wants the Ephesian church to do here for the widows in need. And that's what he wants us to do as the church of today. Sharing God's expression, sharing God's compassion, rather, excuse me, is a huge part of, of who God is and what he cares about. Look at Psalm 68, four through six. It says, his name is the Lord, father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. Isn't that cool? When God describes himself, he describes himself as a defender of widows and a father to the fatherless. He longs that our church families would be a place where widows and orphans can belong and find care. The Apostle James summarizes the the whole tapestry of Scripture and what it teaches about this when he says in James 1.27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Man, sharing God's compassion is right at the heart of what we're called to do as a church. It's such an important priority, and it's one that we can often miss. This last week, I had a chance to talk with someone in our congregation who has just exemplified this kind of compassion for widows in our church family. Her name is Velma Jost, and I'd like to share a little bit of her story, which she gave me permission to do so. Velma and her husband, Gary, were actually one of the five original founding families of this church back in 1983. They met for Bible study and wanted to launch a church together that could be a a beacon of, of light and hope that was focused on the Word of God. After helping launch the church and being involved as leaders for many years, Gary's job moved their family to Indiana. But then tragically, Gary developed a very aggressive brain tumor and passed away quite suddenly at the age of 50. Velma said that during this difficult time, she experienced the love and the support of her family. She also learned to depend on the provision of care, provision and care of Jesus in a deep way. And she returned here to to First Free from Indiana so that this could be her church family as she walked the season of life. About eight years later, some staff members asked Velma if she would be interested in starting a support group for widows here at the church. And initially she was hesitant because she didn't think of herself as a leader. But as she prayed about it, she felt God laying this passion for this ministry on her heart. This was a journey that she had walked personally, and she wanted to walk it with others. So she started a group called Hope for Widows. They met monthly in the big house. They had lunch, Bible study, supported each other. They became a family to one another. Then about a decade later, Velma felt God lay a specific passion on her heart for caring for younger widows with children. So she started a group that met in her home. She cooked delicious meals. She provided childcare and babysitting so these moms could just get a break from caring for their kids. And she even created a whole Bible study curriculum about walking with God as a widow. Most importantly, though, she shared her life and her heart. As she thought back on her ministry, as she was describing it to me, She said this, and it really stood out to me. She said, the greatest thing that I brought was love. 
Isn't that an amazing quote? The greatest thing that I brought was love. So just showed up week after week, extending and sharing the compassion of God through tangible acts of love. Velma still faithfully attends First Free. She loves being a part of God's family here. And she talked about how important it is that we care for each other as family. That we reach out to those who are hurting. That's the kind of church that she wants us to be. And man, her life and ministry set an incredible example for us to follow. We have a legacy here at First Free of people who have shared God's compassion. And you and I get to be a part of that as we enter in and obey when God prompts and nudges us. Maybe it's something like Operation Christmas Child, which is going on right now. Maybe it's being a part of our Take Back Black Friday campaign, which we're going to talk about at the end of the message a little bit today. Or maybe it's just a specific action step to share God's compassion with someone that he lays on your heart or to start a ministry or a group. We get to be a part of sharing God's compassion, and that should be an important priority in all of our lives. And so far, we've seen that it's important to encourage God's family, the church, and to share God's compassion in the church. The third important priority that we're going to see connects to our families, and it's the, the priority of keeping God first. Keeping God first, especially as we think about caring for our families. Let's look at verse 8 together. Paul says, but those who won't care for their relatives, referencing back to, to those who weren't caring for widows in this context, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Wow, they've denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. This is a very strongly worded passage, and it clearly teaches that we're called to love and provide for our family. If you're someone who struggles to make your family an important priority, this verse can be a really important wake-up call that we need to hear, and I'm sure that it was for some in the Ephesian congregation. Paul reminds us that the way we love our family says a lot about the true condition of our faith. This is what Paul means when he says those who won't care for their relatives have denied the true faith. In Paul's thought, it's possible to profess faith with your mouth, but deny it with your actions. And so in Titus 1.16, he says, such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. That's what was going on here in the church in Ephesus. And man, that's sometimes something that can go on in our own hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that if you failed to provide for a family member that you forever denied the faith and that you're, you're doomed to judgment. When Paul says they're worse than unbelievers, what he probably meant was just that they're acting in a way that is below the moral standards of even a non-believer. In that culture, caring for your parents was very important. And so for Christians and in the church to not live that out would have been seen as, well, you're acting worse than, than a non-believer is. But again, this doesn't mean that you've forever denied the faith or doomed to judgment. We are saved, and this is really important, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and loving our families doesn't earn us anything in that equation. We aren't saved by our works, and we aren't condemned by our failures or our mistakes. And we see this in all places in the life of Peter. Peter denied Jesus, and that word used for deny in the Gospels is actually the same word that's used here for denied the faith. That was wrong of Peter to deny Jesus, but Peter was also forgiven by Jesus. And in his deepest 
failure. And in one of his worst failures, Peter encountered the grace of God in a powerful and beautiful way, and it transformed Peter into a mighty man of God. I think the same transformation is possible in us, and the same transformation is even necessary in us if we are going to love our families well. Family can be challenging. It can be so tricky to put these principles into life and in real-life complicated situations. And if we're going to love our families well with kindness, we need to be deeply connected to the grace of God. It's the grace of God and staying connected to it that enables us to love our families well. And that's why it's so important that we keep God first in the context of our families. A few years ago, Russell Moore wrote a really interesting book called The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. That's a great title in and of itself, and it's a really interesting book that I would recommend if you're trying to navigate loving your family well in a difficult situation. He talks in it about how important it is that we stay connected to Christ and make him our first priority so that we can love our family well. He says this, If we seek first the kingdom, we're better able to seek the welfare of our families. If we love Jesus more than family, we're freed to love our families more than we ever would have otherwise. If we give up our suffocating grasp on our family, whether that's our idyllic view of family in the now or our nostalgia for the family of long ago, our scars from family wounds or our worries, for our family's future, we are then free to be family, starting with our place in the new creation family of the church. Family is a blessing, yes, but family is only a blessing if family is not first. I think that's so important. Family is only a blessing if family is not first. If we end up making family our first priority, we can almost place a heavy burden on our families that it wasn't really intended to bear, and we can serve them in a way where we need something back from them that isn't healthy. But man, if our lives are deeply connected to the love and grace of God, we can love our families with this open-handed kindness and, and generosity because we're extending God's love to them. So it's so important that we keep God first. I saw this in the life of one of my friends recently. I was talking with him about um, something that he was thinking and praying about in his life. He was wondering if he should pursue a new job opportunity where he could work, uh, make rather, a lot more money and where he'd get a lot of respect kind of from a promotion in the community. And he thought and prayed about it and he felt like God was leading him to say no to pursuing this new opportunity because his current job was such a good fit for serving in the church and for loving his family. Well, and I just thought, wow, what a countercultural example of having your priorities in the right order. Maybe there's a way you need to adjust your priorities to better love and serve your family, or maybe family itself has become an idol, and you need to make sure that you're keeping your relationship with the Lord first. Again, I think it's tricky and complicated to figure out exactly how to apply these principles, but if you're facing a tough situation in your family, be encouraged that God will guide you as you keep him first and seek his wisdom. So, so far, just to sum up where we've been, we've seen that we're to encourage God's family, we're to share God's compassion, 
and we are to keep God first. There's one final priority that I want to look at in this passage, and it kind of sums up all of these priorities. It's the priority of pursuing godly growth, pursuing godliness as we walk through this life over the years. In verses 9 and 10, Paul continues to talk about caring for widows. He says this, A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well-respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good. Man, these older widows that Paul describes here, they've pursued a life of godliness. Look at the list of character traits that describe them. They're faithful to their commitments. They're well-respected because of the good they've done. They've cared for their children and possibly even for orphans in this context, which is something that happened in the first century church quite frequently. They were kind to strangers. They showed hospitality, which was so important in that culture. They've served humbly. The Greek there literally means they've washed the feet of the saints. They took a, a posture of humility in the church and served, and they've helped those who are in trouble. They've lent strength to those who are weak, who needed help. This isn't just the portrait of a, a godly widow. This is the portrait of a godly disciple. These are things that all of us are actually called to as followers of Jesus. And man, the lives of these widows just reflect compassion, faithfulness, devotion to Jesus. They've pursued godly growth. It strikes me that these widows probably knew struggle and knew hardship and knew loneliness, that there was something even about that that cultivated this dependence on God in them. Hopefully that's an encouragement for any of you who are, are walking through a difficult time right now. God's encouraging you and, and working in you. Be encouraged that God is growing something in you if you're walking through something difficult or challenging. Now, while we see godliness in this group of older widows, we see ungodliness and moving in the wrong direction in this group of younger widows that Paul describes in verses 11 through 15. Now, this is a little bit longer section of scripture, and to be honest, it's kind of confusing. So try to hang with me as we go through it. I'm going to read the entire passage just so you can get the context, and we'll kind of draw a, a big picture conclusion here. In verse 11, it says, the younger widows should not be on the list, the, the list of, of support from the church, because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ, and they will want to Remarry. Now, very briefly, remarriage itself wasn't the issue. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 that um, remarriage is a legitimate, godly option for widows and for other believers as well. What was probably going on here is that they were tempted to marry non-believers and thus be pulled away from their faith or that they had made a vow to the church to serve as a widow and that getting married would then break that vow. So that's what Paul is talking about in, in verse 11. In verse 12 then he says, then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge, their, their commitment to Christ. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. 
Let me just briefly note that, that that's not necessarily Paul's advice to all widows or, or to all believers in this situation. Paul's giving some specific advice here to this group of widows. And again, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about staying single or remarriage is legitimate, godly options. In verse 15, he says, for I'm afraid some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. Wow. Like I said, there's a lot of details in that passage, some interesting questions, but the big picture is that these widows were not pursuing godliness. They weren't on a godly path for their lives. And Paul even says he's afraid that some of them are now following Satan. And the, the widows themselves may not have even been aware of this. I don't think Paul means that they um, joined the occult or were worshiping Satan publicly or anything like that. He's just saying that instead of moving towards Christ, they're moving towards the plans and, and purposes of our spiritual enemy, the devil. It's really important to, to be aware of that even if we're not aware of it, if we're getting lazy or if we're getting pulled from Christ, we could actually be getting pulled toward the plans and purposes of, of the enemy. Our priorities really matter. They either lead us towards God over the course of our lives or towards the opposite of God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you the part that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God or else into one that is in, that is in a state of war and hatred with God. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. It is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, rage, eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Man, our choices matter. Our priorities matter. They lead us towards God and the Lord or away from him. And sometimes we can be so casual about our choices and about our priorities. And God just wants to remind us through the example, especially of these godly widows who live these lives of blazing, beautiful holiness and, and righteousness. They were wonderful that he wants to do that in us. He wants to transform us into people who will truly be godly and pursue him over the course of of our lives. Now, it strikes me that we can't do this in our own strength and power. We need the transformation of Jesus to really live this out. So as we start to wrap up here, let me go back to the couch for a few minutes. I scrubbed that couch like crazy, and I could not get the green out of it. It was in there forever. Uh, yesterday, one of our neighbors called and asked if we wanted a new couch. <laughs> She actually posted online, maybe she saw me out scrubbing. And, and it struck me in just kind of a, a funny way, and sometimes God does this, is a picture not only of his provision for us and our family, but also a little bit of a picture of the gospel. Man, we can try to clean up our lives and our sin and our struggles and our own power and strength, but we really need a new heart from Jesus. We need a deeper level of transformation, and that's what Jesus offers us on the cross. Man, what's amazing to think about is that Jesus made us his priority when he died on the cross for us. 
So, so many of us struggle to even make God a priority in our lives, yet we became the priority of the God of the universe when he died for us. It's incredible and, and, and it's beautiful, his, his love for us. And I think when we see that and when it hits home in our hearts that we were made the priority of the God of heaven, that changes our hearts. And man, it, it makes us want to follow Jesus with everything that we have. This is such good news in the gospel that we can be loved and accepted and forgiven in God because of Jesus. We can enter into a relationship with him where he transforms us to have godly, life-giving priorities. We've covered a lot of ground in today's passage. We've seen these four priorities, encouraging God's family and the church, sharing God's compassion, especially with widows and orphans and and the poor, keeping God first, especially in our families, and then pursuing godly growth with intentionality over the course of our whole lives. Anytime we see something that's important to God, in his heart and scripture, we should pause and ask ourselves if that priority shows up in our hearts and lives. So I'd encourage you to take some time this week and just evaluate your priorities. Maybe make a list of the top priorities in your life. Ask God if there are any priorities that he has for you that you might be missing. I spent some time doing this myself and it was really challenging and convicting and also encouraging just to hear from God some of the priorities that he wants me to focus on in this next season. Be praying that God would speak to you and get some time with him this week to look at your priorities. Now, as we close our time together today, there's actually a specific way that we can apply today's passage Um, especially as we think about sharing God's compassion. This is the time of year where we announce our Take Back Black Friday offering. And if you're new to First Free, let me just explain what that is. Um, A number of years ago, we started this tradition around Thanksgiving and Christmas of spending less so that we could give more. And so the whole idea is that we would spend less on Black Friday and Christmas and give sacrificially to causes that advance God's kingdom. This year, we're really excited to announce a new partnership, and uh, I'd like you to go ahead and watch the following video, and and I'll tell you more about what our Take Back Black Friday offering is going to be this year. So this year, we're so excited because we're going to get to partner with Compassion International for one project to plant a new church in Peru, South America. This church is going to serve as a center for the relational and spiritual and physical needs of impoverished families, and we'll be able to build a partnership through child sponsorship and short-term mission trips. We are so excited about this partnership and what it's going to look like for our church. Now make sure you come back next week because Adam and John will be here to share more about what this partnership is going to look like and they'll recap they'll recap a took that they took to Peru uh, for a vision trip last year. So make sure you're back next week. For now, I know that this is the time when a lot of us start planning our Christmas shopping and with shortages that we've heard about in the news, a lot of us are buying Christmas presents early. Let's be looking for ways to scale back on spending so that we can give sacrificially to show God's compassion. We're gonna close now with a song of worship that our team is gonna lead us in. And it's a great reminder that we can only embody these priorities that we've talked about today through God's strength at work in our hearts. We're dependent on his power and his grace to transform us. So let's sing this song out as our closing prayer. Let's invite God to bring his priorities into our hearts through Christ in us. Let's stand and sing.